0: This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. How hard is it to do work for your friends? How has shifting from employee to employer changed the way you approach projects? If you could drastically change one thing about architecture school, what would it be? All this and more on today's episode as Andrew and I answer your burning questions where almost nothing is off limits. Welcome to episode 94, Ask the Show, Spring Edition. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are answering your burning hot questions. So... I mean, everyone should kind of know how this works by now. This is like the third or fourth one of these that we've done. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I put a call out on my Instagram account and people submit questions and we get, I don't know, we got like 60 or 70. It's pretty nice. I love it that people kind of go, hey, ask this question. And some of them were questions. Yeah, some of them weren't. <laughs> they weren't. Come on, people. One word is not a question. Especially without a question mark, even. Yeah. I mean- Come on. You got to at least put the question mark in. (laughs) So we got about 10 really good ones, I thought. At least ones that I thought that we could take five or so minutes and get enough into that has some value to it.
1: We had more than 10 good ones. We narrowed it down to 10. That's fair. There was more than 10 good ones. Yes. We just cut this down to ones that could have succinct or at least somewhat succinct answers in the five-minute things. We're not
0: capable (laughs) of succinct answers. But the reason why there were other questions that were good that we're not using, and we're not using them for a couple different reasons. Part of it is it might be related to a topic that we're planning on doing an entire episode on. That was one possibility. Another reason it was probably a good question, but we didn't get into it is because it might be 20 minute answer to get that one in and be of some value, at least the way that I perceived the value to be provided. Or it was so niche and specific to you, the question asker. That I didn't want to use that as one of the questions that we were going to answer because only you care about it.
1: Yeah, Only a benefit for you, yeah. not our yeah.
0: millions and millions of listeners. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, And then the other one is some of the questions, you guys, they just didn't make sense or they weren't questions like we'd kind of mentioned earlier. So if I couldn't figure them out or we're like, were they asking this or they, were they asking that? We kind of said, well, put a pin in it. And we'll come back to it. And by the time we'd got to 10, all those pins, they were still up on the wall. So that's how yeah. that works. Exactly. I will say I was a little disappointed that we almost always get some like silly or salacious questions. You know, like, I got asked what color underwear do I prefer? No one asked that kind of question. Yeah. Everyone understood the assignment. They may be taking us too seriously now. Yeah. We're all
1: grownups apparently now.
0: I know. None of that stuff. No more teenage goofy questions. So maybe because we called this the spring edition, that suggests that there will be a fall edition. I mean, I guess I could suggest that there's a summer and a fall and a winter. It's true. We'll do it like once more. We do like two of these a year now. That's kind of the idea. You know, I guess that's your last chance of 2022 to ask us like an interesting personal question that we probably won't answer. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's not true. If it's a good one, definitely I'll take it off the wall. All right. So we got 10 and we don't want to burn too much time talking about the questions that we're going to talk about, let's just talk about the questions.
1: Let's do it. We got to get to it. Let's
0: get into it. Okay. So the first question we're going to get to today, I'm not going to say question number two and question, cause I didn't number them and I'm not going to remember what question we're on. So <laughs> the first question, well, we may not get to all 10, so you're going to get just... the first and the next and then the last, right? So that's <laughs> how that's going to work people. Oh, here's the other thing I should say real quick in case you didn't know. If you submit a question and we answer it, when we write up the show notes for the episode, not only do we give you credit, I'll put a link back to your Instagram account. So some people will be able to check your stuff out. Unless you submit and go, hey, by the way, don't, another caveat. (laughs) If you have a private account, I'll say who you are, but I won't link to it because people don't want to click on it and go private. Because I've told you before, if you have, and this is for anyone, I don't follow people back if they have a private account. Because I'm not asking to be led into your secret world. There's something about that, I don't know, that doesn't make me comfortable, right? <laughs>
1: the inner sanctum, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: If your account is public and I go, oh, check it out. We engage. I'm like, I mean, I'll follow you back because I feel like we got something, right? But if I click on it and it says private, uh uh-uh, I'm out. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I don't want to be a creepy guy. Interesting. Yeah, I know. But I got you. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's unreasonable, but- First question comes from Eric Rengle at Eric Rengle. So, hopefully I pronounce these names correctly. But his question is, what are the difficulties when doing work for your friends? And you and I had a brief chat about this before we're talking about it right now. And we kind of looked at it differently because I looked at it as in like your friend hires you and things don't go well. And how does that put a strain on your relationship? That's how I read it. Yeah, yeah. But that's not how you read it.
1: Yeah, I read it as how does it work when you're doing favors for your friends and doing work for them? Doing them a solid or doing them a freebie. So yeah. we approached it differently in our answers, I think, or our ideas about it.
0: Yeah, so the difficulties for me, and I'd say me, at least the ideas that I had, had to do when expectations don't align with what the other person thinks they're getting. For example, and this is part of the reason I think that this issue goes away in my brain, the older you get. Because the older you get, the more likely your friends have money to actually be able to afford to pay you to do what you need to do at the level that you probably think that it needs to be done. Whereas Mm. when you're 26 years old or whatever and somebody goes, hey, can you help me renovate my kitchen? I can pay you a box of crackers and a six pack of beer. And you know what? You you could be a great guy. You could be a great person. But chances are you're gonna get busy with something else, or just like, hey, I want to go outside. It's a nice day today. And your friends are like, hey man, how come you're not working on my project? I don't know, maybe it's stale crackers that you're paying me and makes me not motivated to work on it every <laughs> spare second that I have. Right? Yeah, yeah. So people's nerves and expect things get frayed. People get like, oh, man, turns out he's really not that good, or he's not like not responsive. And and that puts strains on the relationship. So to me, that was beginning, middle, and end of that question. It had to do with someone's paying you X, you're delivering Y, and those things are out of alignment. And so people are like, "Come on, man, why are you doing me this way?" And that could be coming from either side. So that's that's the only difficulty I've ever run into, and it only happened when I was in my twenties, and it's never happened to me since.
1: Yeah, I think even though I'm looking at it differently, and even after our little discussion earlier. It comes down to expectations, actually. Even if you're doing them a favor, you have to sort of bring it up that, look, this is not my full-time job, or I'm doing this on the side, so it's going to get side attention. And if they're okay with that, then it's fine, right? But they need to understand that, that it's going to be not your number one priority, even though for them, it may be their number one priority, but they're not paying you enough to make it your number one priority, right? So I think it's about making those expectations and that kind of understanding now in the beginning, because like you said earlier, that it has a chance to go sideways and ruin friendships if those things aren't really understood from the get-go. Yeah. Like, you just have to make sure that you're being up front with them about whatever your expectations are, and they're being up front without whatever their expectations are, and that you can manage that stuff. And that could be the amount of time, it could be the amount of money, I mean, there's all those things. That are involved with it, but you got to get those ironed out or it could ruin friendships.
0: Yeah. But it could be the greatest thing ever. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I want to say the reason why we're focusing on that aspect of it is because Eric asked us about the difficulties. I will say I know lots of people that have done work for their friends and it's worked out really, really well for both parties. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, Bob and Andrew just have had nothing but terrible experiences. While that's mostly true for me when I did it early.
1: (laughs) And not for me. Mine have all been pretty good, so.
0: I have a guy that literally has never paid me. It's been literally like 30 years and he stiffed me on this bill. And it was at that time, it represented like 10% the cost of my house. It was not a little number for me. And, you know, and so I, I just looked at it differently. I went, guess what? I'm not friends with that person anymore. So I'm well aware that what I did and what I felt like I gave up and how little I was asking in return to him just to go. Well, you know, don't do this and don't do this. I'll pay you eventually. And then he never paid me. Right? Even though he said, I will pay you, and he just never did it. And I didn't ever like put hardcore paperwork in place. I didn't come after him, mm-hmm. right? Because it just it wasn't that sort of thing. So, yes, there are difficulties, and it normally has to do when the two parties' expectations are not in alignment with one another. And what happens is you're not friends anymore. Again, but that only happens, it seems to me, when people are younger. And I think that's true because it's money related most of the time. All right. So hopefully we did you a solid Eric by answering your question. <laughs> okay.
1: Maybe, maybe
0: let's go on to the next one. I'm not going to say this one correctly, but it's at Wilsky or Sky, but it's W I L S K Y Y. You know, it's got some of the Instagram like spelling Bob with eight B's on the end kind of thing.
1: Yeah. yeah. I was going to go with Sky, Wilsky. Wilsky. I don't know.
0: All right. Well, her question, if I remember, I'm pretty sure it's a she, what assignments do new graduates get in their first year of work at small and large firms? So I asked this question to Miranda, the young woman who sits in front of me in my office who works on my projects. And she goes, ooh, that's a really good question. What's the answer?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's my thing about it. It's a really tough question. It's a good one, but it's a difficult one to answer.
0: What makes it hard is it's at small and large. Because, you know, if you just said, I mean, you can still answer the question, but it's not the same answer if you're at small or if you're at a large. So I can tell you when I had my own small firm, you did everything that everybody else did pretty much. You drafted, you drew, you went to meetings, you did design work. Now, there were certain things that you didn't do as a new graduate, which is like billings and proposal writing and that kind of garbage. And there's things you did do that elder statesmen like myself no longer did, like go and field measure that house. There's certain things that what happens at my last firm when we charged hourly, people would lose their mind. They're like, why am I paying essentially principal level person to measure my house who costs 2x or 3x more than this person who's one year out of school, who's perfectly capable, right? I would go once and I'd say, this is how we do this. And you would teach them how to do it. And then you'd always send somebody with a little bit more experience to go along with the younger people so they could do it. But for the most part, in small firms, you kind of do everything, right? That's kind of the nature of the small firm. And slowly you get bigger responsibilities. You get to go downstream further without having everything you do checked. Because that's the thing I have noticed between big firms and small firms with people right out of school. In small firms, my experience was we'd tell somebody, this is where I want you to be in a week. And they could pick whatever path they wanted to get to that point in a week, right? And they could have 20 tasks and I wouldn't give you one task and have you come back and i check it and then I'd give you task number two and you go do it and then come back and i check it. We didn't function that way in a small firm. Big firms are a little bit more siloed. So while people still have a lot of responsibility, the people who are right out of school in my office now, pretty much they're designers. Like they get to do design exercises because what they do know is they, they know scale and proportion and aesthetics and they know software and they can get into SketchUp and InScape and Twinmotion and they can do things that have immediate value right now. What they can't do is negotiate contracts and do construction administration and like do waterproofing details. They can't do that stuff yet. So they have to kind of be eased into it. So that's how it works with my office at both small and large. Was your experience much different than that?
1: My employees, when they started like right out of school, they started more at the, I guess, the basic level of construction details and drawings and stuff to learn that. That was primarily their focus. Granted, they still did everything. I mean, they go, you go to meetings and you do all the same stuff that you're talking about. But my intent was always to get them up to speed quicker on the way buildings get put together, mm-hmm. I had them doing more of those things in the beginning to try and actually make them progress to where they can do a whole building by themselves because I knew that they could do design stuff. I mean, they were doing that too. Again, like you say, they do everything in a small firm. It's not like you get siloed into doing bathroom details or something, but I would always have them focused on. Construction drawings or shop drawings or they would always come with me to site visits and things like that to really get them to understand construction as much as possible
0: yeah like right out of the gate that was always my goal but your firm was smallish right I mean yeah I mean 10 to people sure yeah. yeah I do think that that's a consideration because one of the questions that was asked that we chose not to answer partly because I don't have a good answer for it not a satisfying one and they're like how do you get experience from being on the job site when you aren't ever allowed to go to the job site. Yeah. And I was like, I don't have the inside question. But at a small firm, everybody went to the job site all the time. Hmm. Like all the time. Hmm. Big giant firm, not that many people go to the job sites. I mean, certainly not people right out of school. Now it's almost like we have to make special trips to get people to go. Small firms, it could be Tuesday, let's go to the job site it just didn't
1: exactly yeah it's part of the thing right i mean every week you're probably going yeah right where in a large firm, it may not be the case
0: yeah well it's because they're like look we want you to make this package and do this powerpoint presentation and we're going to put a marketing package together go out to this client for this land use study that we just got through doing it's much more graphic intensive Mm -hmm. kind of focus work and they tend to i could see that yeah and when we go do job fairs which we're currently in the middle of doing job fairs yep And they go, what would I do if I worked for you? And I tell them, they're like, that sounds amazing because that aligns with kind of where their head is at in school. Mm -hmm. Like we just got done with the UT career fair and they go, what do you think I'll be doing? I go, well, you're going to be designing buildings. And they're like, awesome, because I did that in school. (laughs) Like that's what, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, sweet, right? And it's different because not all schools are as design focused as UT is, but we feel like our goal really, quite honestly, is to leverage people's interests and talents on day one into things that they feel like they can be productive and grow as opposed to just throwing you in the deep end and going, okay, let's do this. And they're like, I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I mean, obviously it works because we do it in small firms, right? All right. We'll ski, sky. Hopefully we got your question covered. All right. So the next question, which I do know is question three, but I'm going to stick with my first, next, 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 next for and then last. So the next question comes from Basic.Workshop. And I think this is a, I don't know if it's a single guy or not. I think his, his initials are JD or his name is JD. He's from Athens, George. I do know that. His question, or her, I guess I don't know. With a new practice, how do you move from starter projects to bigger and better ones? I like this question. I don't necessarily like my gut reaction. Because my gut reaction, a- no, go, yeah, go ahead. ahead, no, 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 no. no I want to hear you first.
1: <laughs> my gut reaction is, is, I don't know. You got to put in the work. I don't know that there's an easy answer for it. It also depends on what kind of work you're trying to do. I know in in the work that I did in public sector work and commercial type work, you just have to keep getting incrementally larger projects because. That's what the clients are looking for, right? Have you done a project like this? Have you done a project like this, and you just have to keep going after ones that are a little bit larger, and then maybe every once in a while try to find one that's way bigger just to see if you can get it and then bumps up your experience level. But yeah, to me, it's all about time. I don't think there's a magic bullet for any of that to be quite honest, at least in my opinion.
0: My gut reaction was gonna be luck, <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably some true as well so. If I think back through my career and I think of those moments where like we got a chance to do something that we hadn't done before. It normally came to us through one of two channels. But there was one common thread through both of them. One is somebody just liked who we were and like the work we did. And they said, I'll give you a shot at it. And that happened. Oh, gosh, how long ago would it have been? I mean, like when I first started doing residential work as an example we were doing a lot of fairly traditional kind of stuff. And there was a friend of one of the partners in the firm who hired us to do a really contemporary project for him. And it was like one of the first ones that we'd been hired to do. And we killed it. It was awesome. And everybody saw it. And people are saying like, well, you can do that. Well, then we'll start asking you to do more of that. And the house is of a scale. So it's almost like you'd go interview for projects and they're like, Well, how many 10,000 square foot houses have you done? You're like, none. And they're like, okay, well, you're not qualified to do it. It's like getting that first one is the thing that makes the next one better. And sometimes Mm -hmm. there's no real logic as to why you got that first one. But the one thread almost normally seems to be a communication connection between you and the person who is in a position to hire you. Like they just like you or they think that, yeah, you're doing something that maybe you can't show me 50 examples of, but- I like you. I trust you. I like the work that you've done. Let's do this together. That seems to happen. And as soon as you get that one, then two and three and four are substantially easier to get. But it's a good question.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say there's a bit of making sure you're doing a good job, right? And that helps as well, right?
0: Well, I would imagine, I don't, you know, maybe what basic dot workshop is asking us is like, are there marketing tips and tricks that you can do? And and I want to say, I don't know everybody's account off the top of my head, but I want to say that if you haven't ever done a giant corn shell office building, getting that first one's gonna to be tough. You know, it just is. Yeah. Yeah. But there are like you said, there are things that you can do to incrementally work yourself up to that. And I'm assuming that Buying another practice that has a portfolio of that work so that you can then, that's not on the table, right? That's not the point of this (laughs) (laughs) question, which is one way that firms actually start to do work. Yeah. It's a viable way for some. Yeah. Yeah. Or they hire somebody who has work in their portfolio that they've done that you can say, well, Jill here has done these projects for the last five years. And here's some examples. It shows like what this firm can do for you, right? Even if it's work you did at other firms. I mean, that's part of the way that happens. Either you buy, Offices with portfolios or you hire individuals with portfolios that have that work. That's sometimes the easiest way to make that transition.
1: Yeah, you made me think of one thing of actually if you're a smaller firm, sometimes teaming with a larger firm on a project and being able to say you were part of this bigger project, even though you might not have to break down exactly what you did and maybe it wasn't as much as you weren't the whole project manager. That's another way to help increase your portfolio and, and have larger projects that you don't necessarily have to take on all by yourself, but that you have a part of. And so you can sell that perspective as well that you are capable of and have done larger
0: scale projects. Yep. All right. Ready for the next one? Let's do it. All right. This comes from millennial archie student. And their question was a very to the point best way to study architectural details.
1: I'm curious. I want to hear your answer on this one.
0: I think there's two things you need to do. I think you need to draw them, number one. Even if you don't know what you're drawing, you got to draw them. Like you need to look, just got to draw them. But the thing that makes that work is you then need to see them in the field. I think that's a huge, huge way because I still remember I have probably dozen of these that I can think of of things that I drew for years, where I like cleanouts when I first started doing residential work, mm-hmm. and I had to draw cleanouts. Be honest with you, I didn't really know what what they were. What that means. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. I mean, I kind of did, but I kind of didn't. And then I was on the job site once and they were in the process of stalling it. And it was a straight line pipe that had like a U shape in it. And I was like, what's the U for? And they're like, oh, when you put the snake down, if you do this one, because the way it's curved, it'll send the snake into the house. But in this one, if you go on this side, it'll send it out to the street. So when you put this into the yard, you know based on which direction you want to go. And I went, so that's why there's two, right? And that's (laughs) why the one that's going in the house is further. Like just being able to understand and see it executed is everything. And that's why when we were talking earlier about the value of going on job sites, I don't know if it's, in a small firm, like everyone gets on the job site like quicker because we need people to have that understanding a lot faster because everybody has to do everything. Like you have to design it, draw it, detail, do constriction, like you have to do it all. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of have this trial by fire that happens. You know, and the downside is you're jack of all trades, master none a lot of times. But what you do know is like it's a very steep learning curve. And when we do stuff in larger firms, a lot of times it takes a while for people to really understand- why a thing is the way it is. Mike, um, one of the questions that I didn't answer that came in. So, one of the questions we got, and I know we're hijacking millennial ARCA students' question a little bit. It was like, hey, are you as condescending in person to your employees as you are on your red lines? <laughs> yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> you know, and the truth is, is again, I ran some of these questions past Miranda as my litmus test. She's the one that's working through all those red lines that I know that he's kind of dialing in on. And uh, she goes, I would love to come on your show and answer that question, right? Because they're not condescending. Like she's standing right next to me when I create most of them. And for her, it's like an active way of talking about it. So we talked about cabinet and how cabinets are built and how they're detailed and what styles are and what rails are and finding a way to develop some consistency as you're moving from room to room to room with the details that you have. And the depth and the level, the red lines that I go through, it's not- Instruction like make this change. It's how does this process impact what you're doing. So it's teaching somebody how to build a clock when they want to know what time it is. That's what my red lines are for, and that I think is a very kind of small firm mentality, right?
1: I think it also has a lot to do with delivery. I think if red lines are just handed off, I mean we've had this conversation before, right? Yes. If I just red line some stuff and dump it on your desk. Then it does seem like condescending or jerky. But if If I sit down and I go over them with you and make you understand my comments, even if they're snarky, but it changes the whole value of that system. Yeah. I would say, I think though, for me, I agree that the thing is about construction to see details in construction. I think you can also, nowadays, I'm telling my students to look at it as many drawn architectural details as you can. Look up stuff. There's details everywhere that you can look up and find that information. And then draw it if you have to, even if you're just sketching it by hand, not drafting it or whatever, but draw it by hand because you can understand how those things go together somewhat, right? That I've got to draw this before I draw that, before I draw this, which sometimes helps you understand the sequence of operations for construction. But yeah, going to a job site and just being able to see how things get built. And maybe this goes to that question earlier that we didn't, we keep talking about these questions we didn't answer. But just go sit somewhere outside of a construction site and watch. It doesn't even have to be your project. I mean, is there one on the way home every day? Well, stop by there in your neighborhood. Walk over there and just look around. I mean, don't poke around and get on the job site. You know, get yourself in trouble. But you can stand outside the fence with a pair of binoculars or just, you know, your phone and do what you got to do.
0: Yeah, until you get arrested.
1: Hmm, Just depends. But still, I think that's an easy way to do it is look at job sites, even if they're not your own. And watch those things happen.
0: Hey, you know what I will say about job sites? And this is something that I just don't see happening. And I don't know if it's just a, you didn't have that. Wait, wait, I can do that kind of moment in your life. So I used to go by job sites literally all the time. And people are like, how do you have time to do that? And I go, I do it because I drive to work at 645 in the morning. And I drive by this job site for 45 minutes before I show up in the office. Like I, it's my time. I do it in the morning. I do it on my lunch break. I do it on the drive home. Mm-hmm. And of course, these were my projects, you know, like the projects that my firm was doing. So I could walk on site. They did know who I was, right? And I can look and familiarize them, be there. If I went up to some of my employees now and I go, hey, you know how we're doing this giant corn shell building? Have you said, hey, this lunch break, can I go over there and walk around? Yeah, just you need to let Ted know. Okay. Nobody does that. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason why they can't do it, but just, yeah. and again, I don't know if it's a scale thing sometimes, but I made greatest leaps in my understanding of how things got built when I started seeing the things I drew come to life in the field. That's when I learned the most. Because the other thing, I would ask this question, when I first started in residential work, I wanted to see every residential detail. Like I didn't have any. And so, I bought books and i like, how does that work? And I tried to figure it out. There was nothing I wanted more than for somebody who did a cool project. I, would, I was so tempted to go, hey, I'm not going to do anything with it, but could you send me a set of your drawings? Could I just look at them? Because I don't know how you did that. Like, I worked in small firms and nobody can tell me it, and I'm trying to figure it out for myself. And of course, nobody's ever going to send you a set of drawings. Like this is just <laughs> never going to happen. And so, and even on Life of an Architect, when I started posting like my details or my wall sections, people are like, you're crazy. Like, I can't believe you're putting this stuff out there. And I go, i do it because I wanted it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And nobody else would show it. So, I mean, why wouldn't we show it? Or at least yeah. at some level, I don't know. The best answer that I have to me really is you got to draw it and then you got to go look at it executed in the field. And then you start to understand what you're drawing and how it shows up. That's the best way. Comma, talk to the contractor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah. But I mean, I think you have to see it because- one of the things I find that either young employees or my students don't understand is just because you draw it some way doesn't mean it can be built that way. Sure. There's a disconnect there that you have to kind of overcome in
0: some way. You know, if I asked the people that worked with me, what two words do I say more than any others other than leprechauns suck, it would probably be construction tolerance.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: We talk about construction tolerance all the time. I go, You've drawn a detail that that guy has to be perfect to execute. The reality is, is that's a level of perfection that we're not – we don't have the budget to pay for that level of perfection. So how are you going to give that person the opportunity to pull that off without you going, it looks terrible? Construction mm-hmm. tolerance. That's what all this stuff is. Yeah. All right. The next question comes from Toledo 80 And their question is, how to delegate tasks in your firm when you're used to doing everything – Yourself. You know, and I'm going to take this one first. Okay. I don't know if it's my turn to go first, but uh, you know, sure, go for it. This one resonates with me a little bit because when I left my last firm and I went to go work for Boca Pal, I struggled for about a year in certain aspects of what I did for a living and how I went about my job. And part of it's because before I didn't ever ask who did something or who's going to do that because it was me, right? Like I did everything. So now we have like, that's not your job. That's the PM's job. No, that's not your job. The partner's going to take care of that. Like there's things that kind of got siloed, responsibilities that were siloed based on if you're a PD one or a PA two or a PM, whatever, that everybody has like a certain role that they play in the process. And it shut my brain down. Like I'd go, I'm not doing it. Am I supposed to do it? I thought you were supposed to do it. But then what am I doing? I was very ineffective for a while. I was staying in my lane too much. Ultimately, what I learned is just do it yourself. <laughs> for the most part, even in a giant firm, I pretty much can just say, hey, I'm going to do this. You do that. And we just kind of go from there. And that delegation, that's hard. I think the only reason why I don't have a problem with it anymore is because like, I've so leaned into this kind of teaching professorial kind of role that I have to where I like designing stuff, but I get just as much joy out of putting somebody on a path, letting them design for a while, us getting together, reviewing it and saying, well, here's what I would have thought. Or what about this? and What about that? And then we massage it together and we make changes together and then they go back off and do it. I don't need to have ownership of everything that gets created now. And I certainly don't have the ego anymore that says, I need to say, plant a stake in something and go, I did this. This is mine. I'm just not that way anymore. I'm like, you did it. You can take 100% credit for this.
1: Yeah. I can answer this question from the standpoint of when I took over my firm or when I bought it, I bought it because the previous owner had suddenly died. But right after that, the other three people that worked there left. And so I was left doing everything on my own for probably almost two years and whatever it was that had to be done, I was doing it. And so at a certain point, I was happy to give some of that stuff away, right? Because it was just like, it was too much. But I think it's a matter of picking the things that you can, can eventually see yourself completely giving up and letting those become someone else's responsibility for a while while you oversee it. Is this sort of slowly let go of it? And then at a certain point, it becomes easy to say, okay, well, I feel like you're capable of doing these things in the way that I would prefer them to be done. And then you can move on to something else, the next task that you want to try to release that you're not doing. But that's been my experience from right after I started hiring more people in my company. And some of it I was forced to just let go of because I couldn't do it all. I had to have two or three other people drawing documents and doing this stuff. And you know I had to teach them the best I could along the way, but you just have to relinquish some of it or else I knew I was going to have a heart attack at 35. Because it was just too much pressure and too much work. So you pick the things that you could see yourself letting go of and slowly or rapidly, depending upon what the circumstances are, let those things go and oversee them. But at some point, you probably may not even be overseeing them any longer. It just depends on how fast things grow, I guess.
0: Yeah. Basically, either way, you have to learn how to let go. And it's not going to be easy. For people that are used to doing it all. Yeah. It's kind of just how it is. So
1: once you start having employees, your role as the owner slash principal changes completely anyway. So realize that those kinds of things are coming as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes that decision gets made for you, whether you want it or not. Like you just simply can't do it all anymore. And so you just kind of go, well, here's the things I'm willing to concede. And it's not normally going to be the going and getting the work and doing the billing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But You're like, I'm going to make sure that gets done the way I want it done. Okay. Here is the next one, which I think is a great follow-up to that. And this came from campaign.mo, campaign.mo. And it was, how has shifting from employee to employer changed the way you approach projects? This is a good question for both of us because we both went from an employee to an employer. Mm -hmm. And it kind of feeds on the last question we just got through talking about. There's a lot of different ways you can answer this question. This is one of those questions that it could be a 30 – I mean, it could probably be a whole show, quite honestly. Like, what's different? Like, how do you see things differently? How do you behave differently? How do you reprioritize the things that need to get done based on what you know as an employee versus what you didn't know as an employee now that you're an employer? So many different ways to look at it. So I went, well, let's just start with like the initial uppermost. When I think about what changed the most, it was money. And I don't mean money in my pocket. I mean like accountability. When you're the person that has to be in the room and tell the client, hey, I know your budget was X and we're at 1.25X. And that doesn't go positively. Things are different. You weren't paying attention to it or like somehow you didn't effectively communicate the things that the client was asking for and how they're going to impact the budget. You start to key in on those things differently in my mind. And it has to do with things like when I sit with the younger designers in my office and they're designing stuff, I tell them, I go, no, 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 no. We're not doing an 18-foot cantilever. We're going to pull that back. And it's not because it's not cool. And it's not because we couldn't actually do it. It's because maybe that's not how we should spend the money that we have, that we've been given custodial authority over, mm-hmm. right? Like we have a different kind of problem to start. So, all of a sudden, now you're the one reeling things in a little bit. People are like, "Come on, man, just get out of the way. Let's let's do a pond that goes underneath the house, right in a glass floor." And you're like, "No, we're not going to do that because it's not in our budget." <laughs> like, there's just just this tamping back. That to me was like the because once I learned like how much employees cost and how much benefits cost and 401k matching contribution costs, and you start figuring out like how do I pay people so that they're happy. We never wanted anybody to leave. I guess I kind of am all over the place a little bit. There's two things I'm looking at. One is from like a business operation side. And one is from like a, having an ownership and making sure that the client's happy and they tell their friends that we were great to work with. And the priorities as I moved from employee to employer, both those silos was fairly profound on the business operations side. And I realized, what does it take to keep people employed? What does it cost me to keep them happy? What do I have to do? to provide all the things that they want so that I don't ever have somebody say, I'm leaving because I got a job where they're paying me better. We're like, I don't want that to happen. I want you to leave because your wife got a job somewhere else and you're moving. That's an acceptable reason in my mind for someone to leave without breaking my heart, right? That's what I look at. So trying to make sure that I educate the employees on, hey, I know that you want a more robust fill in the blank. But this is why we're not doing it the way you want to do it, or this is why we're no longer closing the office for two weeks in between Christmas and New Year's because of these reasons. You know, we're at a size now, and I mean, I will explain all that to them so that I'm not the jerk. I still remember two jobs ago. I think it was two jobs ago. The firm paid overtime. This is a terrible story. (laughs) Firm paid overtime. But the truth is, is it was a pretty well-managed company and people didn't work a lot of overtime for the most part. Mm-hmm. And because of me being who I am, I benefited from this policy the most. Sure. I mean, I made more overtime money than anyone else did. But I didn't like the way that that set up the culture in our office. I didn't like the idea that people felt like they had to get things right the first time or they didn't check their work because that took more time than what they would have during an eight-hour day. And I go, look, you're a pro. You should do what needs to be done to make sure that your job is done correctly. So I went to the owners of the firm at the time and I said, I'm going to advocate that we get rid of overtime. And of course they go, "Mm, tell us more. And I went, you can look and see what everybody generally works because everyone had been there for years. And I go, you generally pay that person $2,000 more in overtime. Like, you know what you pay. I go, just give them a raise, just raise them by that amount and say, we're not paying overtime anymore. We expect you just to do your job. That's all we want. Just do your job. Mm-hmm. And we're going to give you the money that you earn. And it's going to change the culture of the office. And so that lesson has stuck with me. And it has to do with like transparency of how business runs from a financial standpoint. Then there's the, the design delivery side of it, the non-business silo. And it has to do with how do you get your documents done right? How do you keep projects in budget? How do you meet your deadlines? Like These are all things that... I know I spend a disproportionate time thinking about compared to the people that are designing these projects and doing that documentation.
1: Yeah. I think for me, I could sum it up maybe in one word, in its responsibility. Relates to all those things that you were just talking about, that I'm responsible for business operations, I'm responsible for keeping people happy, I'm responsible for everything. There's no more passing the buck because I'm where the buck stops as an employer now versus an employee, I don't have the liberty to say, well, somebody else is going to take care of that or somebody else is going to have to deal with that because it's not, it's me, right? It all comes back to me as the employer. And I think the way you look at projects now is, you know, how can I make sure the projects are being executed in a way that is responsible, that keeps the firm operational, that keeps my employees happy, that keeps my clients happy, that does all these things, right? That just ultimately, I am responsible for all of these things. And it's a lot more responsibility. I think as an employee, which, I mean, I was only an employee for maybe six or seven years, but, you know, I didn't have a problem like, "Eh, I can deal with that tomorrow, I'm going to go home. It's not not my problem, not my problem. If I wanted to, as an employer, you don't have that option. To me, one of the biggest things was about this idea of responsibility. It's not really about projects, but that, I was now responsible for other people's livelihoods. And that was the biggest biggest change in the way I approached everything. But that doesn't really answer the question. I think it's just more about making sure you're responsible for the projects in a different way.
0: Yeah. And you know, and the truth is is that's not to suggest that if you're not an employer you don't feel responsibility.
1: No, 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 not at all. Right. I, I just think it's just more. It just adds to the responsibility that you already feel. Yeah. <laughs> or you should yeah. already feel. Okay.
0: All right, the next question that we're going to address comes from I am Seth Shellman, which this dude is a question machine. I I want to say that. Yeah, yeah, all the time. We always get, either he has great questions or I don't know, but Seth, this one's for you, man. Collaboration is key to the design process. Do you think it's viable to do so in the work from home or hybrid scenario? So let me tell you, everybody listening, lean into your car speaker or your head, I don't know how you can lean in the headphones. <laughs> anyway, we spent a lot of time talking about this in my office because we just got through trying to come up with a work from home policy for better, or for worse, whatever we landed on is where we're currently at. And one of the major considerations we talked to had to do with firm culture and collaboration. And not everybody agreed. In fact, I want to say that it was almost 50-50 split. Two extreme measures. One group was like, nope, you can't do any of this if you're not in person working with one another. I felt like collaboration was impossible if you're not in person. Then the other faction would kind of go, well, we have remote offices, like we work with the remote office all the time and we do teams and we did all this. I'm like, we have all these tools that are put in place specifically so that we can communicate remotely. And we're not willing to concede that we're incapable of doing that. So, how is it that we can't manage to find some levels to collaborate in a work-from-home or hybrid scenario?
1: Can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Was that a divide by age or no?
0: Oh, it's one hundred percent by age.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's what I would have figured. I was just curious.
0: Oh, uh, for sure, for sure, it was divided by age. Okay. You know, so here's the consideration: if I take Seth's question face value. Work from home or hybrid. In my mind, work from home is you're working not in that office, period. Mm -hmm. And hybrid is you're spending some time at home and some time in the office. I'm not down for the complete 100% work from home situation. I wouldn't want my firm to be that way, and I wouldn't want to be that way, quite honestly. And it's not because I feel like we couldn't collaborate, but I 100% know that the way I work would not work out well if I didn't have the ability to sit with somebody and body language our conversation. And I draw a lot and it's really hard to do that digitally. I've yet to see anyone draw digitally in a go-to or a zoom meeting. That's anywhere close to what even I'm capable of doing with a piece of paper sitting next to somebody. I don't think it works. Now that's not to say that you could go 50, 50. I think that there's a balance that you can find for sure. Cause the truth is, is we're not all, sitting on each other's laps working the whole time we're in the office. There's time we come together, and it makes sense, and we collaborate. And then there's times when we separate, and we go back to our desks, and we work, and we focus, and we lean into what we're doing. And that can last hours, or that could last days before we have to get back together. So clearly, clearly some hybrid scenario of this, it's the future. It's what everyone's going to be doing. And I just mentioned you know, the career fair thing that we were doing recently. It's what everyone's asking about. Everybody asks about work-from-home policy. Actually, one guy didn't. And when I brought up, I go, do you have any questions about our work from home policy? He goes, nope, don't care. <laughs> like, he's like, doesn't matter to me. I'm going to come in the office or we're in the office. I don't care. just what I want to do. I'm in. Like he was raring to go the whole time. <laughs> and you were like hired. I was like, you know what? <laughs> love that. I mean, yeah, I love the whole, yeah. I was like, do you want to know about our insurance? Nope. I'm sure it's pretty good. Like, I mean, he just did not care. He's like, what am I working on? Am I going to do this? What do the He had all these great questions and all this kind of background stuff he just didn't care about. So I do agree with Seth's comment that collaboration is key to design, but design does not make up a huge percentage of what the people in my office do. If I have a hundred people in the Dallas office, if I take out construction administration, if I take out project managers, if I take out some percentage of the time that the project architects, because we still maintain that project architects who draw details need to have some design, they need to think about it. Like it needs to be part of what they do. I don't have a huge number of pure designers in the office, so we're not even talking about a huge percent of the office. Certainly not talking about a huge percentage of the time, like that people put on their timesheets. It's not dedicated to the pure act of design. So this question is a little neutered right out of the gate for me, to be honest. But again, if I just look at it and say, all right, if you are designing and we acknowledge that collaboration is key, can you pull that off in a hybrid or a pure work from home scenario? And I go, yes to the hybrid, no to the pure 100% work from home. And
1: maybe I was looking at this again a different way, because when he says design, I would almost just replace that with architecture. Architecture is collaborative, not just design, but every part of architecture is pretty collaborative. I do agree that I don't think that there's any way a 100% work from home situation could be as collaborative. I'm not saying it couldn't be collaborative. I just don't think it sets up the same level of understanding and knowledge and communication and sharing that happens in an in-person environment. Mm -hmm. There's evidence of that. I can just tell you that, that there's evidence of that over the past year and a half of completely 100% online schooling that I have teaching third-year students or students whose first year and a half of their master's program was all online, that they don't have the same level of understanding of things. It just it doesn't work that way. And I think that's field related. I,
0: Wait, hold on. I want to add something to that because I think it's important. Because we talked earlier about the distinction being age related and that the older folks seem to not want to do work from home and the younger people do. Mm-hmm. But your example just pointed out that these third year students are clearly young folks. Yeah. And we're saying- We're telling you that it's not working for you, the person that wants it the most. Like, you want this, and we're telling you that it's not to your benefit because you're seeing it. Yeah, at least
1: a purely situation. I mean, I think, like you said, though, I think it's highly probable. I mean, in reality, in every office, there's those times where you have to come together and communicate about projects. But then there's times where there's, yeah, you just go put your head down and do the work. But you can't put your head down and do the work and never come back to interacting with things. And I mean, I understand there's an idea of schedule flexibility that seems to be inherent with the work from home thing, which really, I think that's what it's about. I don't think it's work from home. I think it's about schedule flexibility. Mm -hmm. In reality, people want to be able to work when they want to work as opposed to some kind of set time during the day. Because I feel like if I said, well, you can come in the office anytime you want as long as you get your work done. That people might be more, they might be happy with that. But I think that there's just something that's lost. I and even all of my professor colleagues will tell you the same thing that it's just a different level of understanding that you can gain in our profession by being in person at least some of the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I kind of think I don't want my doctors to learn medicine in a work from home scenario. You know, that's <laughs> not something I would want. I kind of want them to be hands-on and, and see things. So I, I just feel like we're the same way in a certain sense. You got to come together and talk about things because there's just a certain amount of idea exchange that can only happen in person to a certain level.
0: Yeah. You know, I was thinking about the idea like you, when you pin stuff on the wall or even if I have a table full of drawings, I can look at what I want to look at, right? I can I can reach over and I can move something to move it where I want to see it. Regardless of what someone else wants to look at, Mm -hmm. as opposed to if we're doing things digitally, I have to like puppeteer you into putting the thing I want on the screen in order for me to see what I want to see and then go, okay, now move that off and put this other thing on, Yeah, but then flip the other thing back on. Like I want to look at the two. Yeah. It doesn't work as well. It's not, if nothing else, say you're that person that thinks we're just complete full of garbage on this. (laughs) It's not as efficient for sure. Right? Yeah. Even if we say, all right, let's not talk about whether or not it's as effective, it's definitely not as efficient. So, and I go, that's a negative. Like we're already down. So that makes me go, it's not as great. It's not as good.
1: But I think a hybrid is possible. I think a purely work from home is not.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I bet you could do at least 50-50 work from home, work in the office and have success. I
1: think. Oh yeah. I would say even more than that.
0: Settle down. Let's let's 50-50 for starters.
1: What is that what is eighty percent eighty percent I
0: don't know about that
1: in the office one day at home four, I would still be able to think it probably work
0: it would work for me I couldn't do 80 20 maybe the people that work for me could but I would have to say okay you're in the office on this day in your office that day because I need your 20 percent of me is i'm I'm eighty percent with all of you
1: yeah right I don't disagree with that but I think it's possible yeah it, granted it all depends
0: on your position in the firm as well yeah so grand pooh is the title I want, but I'm not that. Mm. Nobody even knows what Grand Poobah is anymore. Do you know what that's from? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. Give me it's the initials. Ha- it's
1: what your handle is on your website. Like, it is. Or whatever. Right. Whatever. Yeah, I know.
0: Nobody's ever acknowledged. So, what we're referring to is if you go to the comment section, any comment I respond to, it has a tag next to it that identifies me really as the moderator. Yes. But I changed it from moderator to say Grand Poobah. And it said that it's been like that way for like 10 years. And for those of you that don't know, that's from the Flintstones. Yeah. Grand Poobah. Ba. <laughs> I just thought that was the greatest. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's get one more question in. Yeah. Before we get into the would you rather. All right. So the next question, which we're going to make the last question, is from Nate Fenry. And Nate, I hope I got your name correctly pronounced here on the show. But Nate's question is. If you could drastically change one thing about architecture school or licensing, what would it be? And I'm going to ignore the licensing part because it's really two questions and this is one question per person the show. (laughs) (laughs) Because the licensing one is simplified, streamlined, less expensive, easier to like go through the process.
1: Well, we had the show, right? We've talked about it before.
0: Yeah, we got a whole show for it. So the drastic thing about architecture school that I would change, Really? is that there appears to be a disconnect in what graduating architecture students think the real practice of architecture is going to be. And I don't know if that's just specific to the 15 schools that I deal with their graduates from. I don't believe that to be true. I'm willing to concede that there's some schools out there that are producing day one super performers. But it seems to me that a lot of students graduate and they don't really understand what we do for a living. And I used to say this, I still do actually, I said it today. I used to believe with absolute blind, whatever the phrase is, (laughs) I believed it hundred percent. And it was, hey, the school I went to, it's design focused. Their premise is we're going to teach you how to do the things that the profession is not going to teach you how to do, because this is a really, really hard school to get into. Like you've already demonstrated that you're really smart and that you're really a hard worker. We're not worried about you being able to figure out what side of the wall the vapor barrier goes on. You'll get that because inherently built into our process is like 3 years worth of internship. The profession's going to teach you how to do more of these hands-on things. So we're going to teach you things that the profession is never going to teach you, like scale and proportion and color theory and critical thinking. These are the things that we're going to focus on. Not how do I manage a project through the process? How do I put together a set of permit drawings? How do I keep water out of my building? How do I assemble in detail a steel truss connection to a concrete wall? These are not the things most schools focus on because they're like, yeah, you'll figure that stuff out. The industry has an obligation to teach you those things. That's why we have an internship. That's why we do three years of this. It's hands-on active learning. So we're going to focus on the stuff they're not going to teach you. And I agree with that as a philosophy. I still think that there's some level of professional practice that should be amped up, like just knowing what you're doing a little bit more, what to expect so you don't have this, I don't know, this sounds like hyperbole, this heartbreak you know, that comes out when you're like, wow, I thought I'd be doing this or this is differently what I've spent my entire four plus two or five years of school doing. My experience in school, while it was great, it was awesome, never ever come close to recreating that in my professional life.
1: Yeah. I agree. The reason I didn't have this one on the list because it's too hard of a question for me to answer.
0: It's just one thing. It's just one thing, though.
1: Yeah, but it's hard for me. It would be a sense of practicality, maybe, in professional practice ideas because I do find it disconcerting that I have either fourth-year students or graduate school students. I'm talking to them about, well, this is what you do in the profession, or this, this is how we would handle this, or this is what's going to happen. And they don't have any idea. This is the first time they've ever even heard something like that come out of anyone's mouth. And I'm not saying that our goal is to become a architecture school should become some kind of technical college where we're just producing people that can draft. It's not that sort of idea. But I think that somehow to insert some level of architecture profession understanding, I would agree. Yeah, because I don't know what else to say. I mean, I think it's great to play pie in the sky for a while and all that, and I don't think that that's something that should be taken away, but I think it's just that the fact that typically the current practices of architecture are often
0: ignored. Yes, I agree.
1: Some people are doing way future-heavy stuff. They're figuring out AI and fabrication techniques and all this sort of stuff that's way down the road, I think, but I was actually just thinking about this yesterday when I was trying to write some stuff for one of my classes, but that... We can study and try to predict the future and what's the future of architecture and some of the things that people are working on, it's like 20 or 30 years out, but that doesn't prepare the students for the 20 or 30 years between now and then, right? And they come out and they're like, uh, well, I'm not crafting some sort of AI program that's going to make this building yeah. design and function and whatever, and that's not how it works.
0: But you know what? You could do this with something simple. If we say, look, we're not saying, like you pointed out, we're not saying the architecture school should be a technical school or trade craft sort of thing. But I do think that they could shift the scales just slightly. For example, I know I was in school for a long time. I took a pottery class. It was one of my favorite classes. I loved it. To this day, I still have some of the vessels I made sitting in the front of my house. (laughs) Was that the best use of three credit hours on my college experience? Yeah. Definitely not. Definitely not. I loved it. I loved it. I did get to flex some design muscles from it, but I go, part of me thought, oh, is really what they're saying is, oh, there should be more business classes. Like you should teach people how accounting works or how business philosophy works. Is that what this question is? And I go, no, I could pull that back even further and just say, just tell people how we do our jobs. Like not even not even the running of our jobs, but just the actual practical application of what we do.
1: Yeah. Again, I think it's the idea of and we talk about it sometimes too, is that we're a service profession, but also that, I mean, architecture is as much about people as it is about buildings. In school, we focus a lot on buildings and not so much on the people. And it's really important because you just have to deal with people all the time as an architect.
0: <laughs> you have to deal with them, it sounds so <laughs> Well,
1: but I mean, again, you got to have some intrapersonal skills, right? Yes. It's funny, I took the one of the NCARB surveys today, and they were talking about soft skills and intrapersonal skills. And they had this list of all these things. It's like, which are the top three most important things? And I'm like, it's all six of them. You can't just pick three. <laughs> I'm going to say that it, there needs to be a bit of practicality, practical application in some sense, whatever that is.
0: Yeah. Okay. To the
1: actual field of architecture.
0: We basically, I think we kind of said the same thing, Beyonce. So I, so we must be right. So,
1: Well, yeah, but I was trying to have a different answer than you because like, you know, I don't want to get pinned as being paired or the yes man again.
0: No, no, no. You, look, you came at it from a different side, but it, it essentially when you boil down, I think it's kind of the same thing. We're, we got here's what's missing. There's this kind of like grounded, like how many dark side of the moon virtual habitat pods are practical? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you need to learn how to critical think, right? Like part of the reason, and I wrote a whole blog post, your architecture school projects are silly. And the reason they are is because they don't want you to come with yeah. like a pre-packaged canned answer. They want to challenge the way that you think of it. That's teaching you how to think critically. Those things are important. Don't ever want to get rid of them. But then there's that kind of, hey, let's actually practice how water flows downhill and how we make things stand up. There's some of that that we just skim the surface on. But at a certain point, someone who's going to say, it's not reasonable for us to really deep dive all the things we need to know because there's too much. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's so much that we have to do. So, we can keep going, but I'm going to say we're going to stop. I'm just going to yep, stop it. We have to. So we're going to do the Would you rather? And because the Winter Olympics are going on, we're going to ask a would-you-rather Olympics question.
1: All right. At least now I know which one you picked. No, because I told you I changed it. Even though you modified it, but still.
0: Yes. And I added the would-you-rather is super stupid, but. Uh Oh, so you took the second half of that one and changed it, huh? I did. Here it is. All right, let's do it. Because I knew this show was going to run long, so I was like, we need to have a short would-you-rather. Sure. So here's the shorter would-you-rather. Would-you-rather. Win an Olympic gold medal or host an extremely popular podcast. <laughs> and that's not to say that it's this one for the record. Well, yeah, because it's obviously not. But uh, yeah, you could be on Joe, you could be Joe Rogan's sidekick or something. I was going to say, I would be Roman Mars. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Here's the reason why I put that on there. Here's why I think it's interesting. All right. So, when I think about Olympic medals, I mean, gold is obviously the best. Well, yeah. Clearly gold's the best. Of course, right? Right. It's that recognition that you're the best in the – technically, you might not even be the best in the world. You just were the best in in the world of the people that entered – On that day. Yep. On that day, right? And look, I'm not trash talking these people that got gold medals. (laughs) Right. But that's like this moment, like this moment is yours, right? That's pretty amazing. That's a singular moment that's amazing. And some folks are able to leverage that singular moment into whatever the rest of their life is going to be. Yeah. And I think that's kind of cool, right? I think most of these Olympic athletes, they go back to stocking shelves at Home Depot, like all the commercials tell us they do, right? They, <laughs> like at some point, You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. We've seen the commercials. (laughs) Maybe it's disrespectful what I said. But there's also a certain amount of celebrity that comes with winning a gold medal. Standing on the stage and the camera's on you and you're like, and you're biting your gold medal and everyone's like, oh my God, he's the greatest. And people want to put you on a Wheaties box, the whole thing. Yes. Right? There's some celebrity that comes along with it. I would say to you, if you had an extremely popular podcast, Could you have a brighter star in that capacity, right? Because there's certainly some celebrity that comes along with it. There's certainly some financial gains that can come along with it. There's your ability to reach out and connect with maybe millions of people is a part of it. Yeah, But it's got a shelf life that's far greater possibly than you're standing on the top platform with your gold medal.
1: Yeah, that was going to be my comment about it as I actually I feel like the podcast sort of thing at least right now past decade or whatever you want to call it it's got more longevity to it because I couldn't tell you I might could name 10 Olympians but there's more than 10 that have won gold medals in the past 20 years so there are a lot of Olympians that nobody knows (laughs) right I mean gold medal winners that it's like okay
0: yeah they were awesome but their moment's gone yeah yeah
1: and even some of the ones that were really popular during that Olympics. They got all the press during the Olympics and da-da-da that I couldn't tell you who they were. I'm assuming though, honestly, the same can be said of the podcast industry as well, right? I mean, of course, but... Oh, for sure. I just, I don't know. There's a lure to the gold medals sitting in my living room just all the time.
0: For the rest of your life, you have like the easiest (laughs) conversation starter ever.
1: I know, and that's kind of nice. And that's something that could Essentially, it could never be taken away from you. And you could say that at one point in time, you were the best in the world or whatever. And that part really appeals to me as a competitive person, a former athletic person and all those kinds of things. So, man, I think I would have to go with gold medal just from the fact that I would have a gold medal all the time and forever. I would go down in history as a gold medal winner. Whereas, you know, at some point in the future, podcasts may disappear. And at some point in the past, they weren't a thing either. But for the time being, the Olympics, it's always
0: something. It's always there. All right. So I'm also going with the gold medal, which I think is the knee jerk reaction. But it's not for I think there's a lot of things that are on par that maybe you don't initially think of that I just got through listing. But the two reasons I think I would go with the gold medal, it's the idea that at that moment people recognize you as the best in the world. Mhm. Now, somebody could say I have the most popular podcast. I'm number 1 in the world in this podcast. And there's not that many people going to do that. But I go, like the achievement, the idea that you work so hard for this one moment and you execute it in that moment, I can't imagine what that would feel like. Yeah. Because I can tell you right now what it feels like to have uh, my level of extremely level podcast. It's kind of a grind. (laughs) You know, I don't have that stand up adoration, right? I get made fun of more often than not in my own office. I know.
1: And I was going to say, man, the number one podcast, it sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) Not that getting a gold medal is not, but like I feel like after I had the gold medal, my work sort of goes downhill a little bit, right? Like Like you're done. I'm done. If I can rest on those laurels. But if I'm the podcast person, it's like, well, I just got to go back and keep going and keep going and keep going. You got to keep
0: going. Uh, Yes. So, but I, I like the idea of being able to go right now in this moment, I'm number one. Yeah, at one point in time I was the best there ever was. Yes. That and you know what? That's yours forever. Right. That's an achievement that not that many people will ever have in their life.
1: And I've got the hardware to prove it. That's the other thing to me. It's like I got the hardware to prove it. I don't think anybody's gonna be sending me a gold microphone.
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I would wear that gold medal. They're like, hey, did I and I did I happen to tell you back in nineteen eighty six? Exactly. Yeah, I got the gold medal right now. It's right here. I got the gold medal. <laughs> yeah, it's always on me. <sighs> okay. So I'm gonna say that was a good show. We answered not as many questions as we wanted. There's two that we left off. It breaks my heart because I really wanted those two.
1: One of them you really wanted. You started the answer so much.
0: <laughs> I know. I started answering it and we were like, no, no, that's the wrong question. Oh, I've got to cut it out. So I'm going to call that a wrap. Thanks for being with us today for episode 94, Ask the Show, Spring Edition. Special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast.
1: Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish an unbelievably astounding new episode.
0: While you're there, please consider giving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five gold star rating.
1: To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this awesome episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.